T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia, is a most unusual hero. He was a scholar, an archaeologist, a cartographer, a linguist, a military strategist and an innovator in military matters, a bomb expert, an engineer, a best-selling author, a worldwide media superstar and a diplomat responsible for the creation of countries. And all of those disciplines he excelled in before the age of 30. Then, quite suddenly, he attempted to disappear from the spotlight by changing his name and re-enlisting as a simple airman in the Air Force, then a private in the Army, and then again as a simple airman in the Air Force. This was very uncomfortable for his superiors, having someone below them who was friends with top politicians, world leaders, the literary elite, and who attracted press wherever he went, and who effortlessly improved and innovated whatever he turned his hand to. He was an individual who was possibly the most famous person of his times, at least the most famous person who wasn't a world leader, with the most impressive roster of friends, yet he claimed to be a recluse and had a phobia of human contact, and who quite possibly, with the exception of being raped by a military commander in Turkey during the Arab revolt, never had any sexual relations throughout his entire life. His life has been raked over as much as, or more, than any other in recent history, yet he doggedly remains an enigma. It would never have occurred to me to attempt to tell a story about someone's life who had been so thoroughly researched, told and retold, but then I came across this incredible story of how Lawrence left the Paris Peace Conference to return to the Middle East that I hadn't seen in any films, documentaries, and only found passing reference to in books. This story required me to go into the Imperial War Museum archives to enable me to bring you July 1919, Game of Thrones. I did not rise in revolt except to champion the truth and to aid the oppressed. The Arabs were Arabs before Moses and Jesus and Mohammed. We were Arabs before all else. Faisal, in a speech given in Aleppo on the 11th of November, 1918, after his Arab forces combined with British forces, liberated the city from the Turks. Lieutenant Colonel T.E. Lawrence, or perhaps Colonel Lawrence, it wasn't really clear what his rank was, was looking out for the heavy silhouette of the Handley Page bomber. He had been made an acting colonel for the Paris Peace Conference. That seemed appropriate, only acting the part. Lawrence felt he had been doing that for so long now that the different parts he played were fusing and confusing inside his brain and he was never clear how the right T.E. Lawrence seemed to automatically spring to the fore to meet the situation at hand. But throughout his four months in Paris, he could feel his cool slipping, and the different characters inside his head were now threatening to declare open warfare on each other, as if the cessation of external warfare served as a catalyst to long-suppressed internal warfare. Life in the desert's highlands and craggy wastelands of Arabia had been tough, really tough. When he had returned to England, he had weighed a mere 77 pounds, Yet back then, his emaciated self was still fueled by the furnace of war. His war for Arab independence, for his leader Faisal. He burnt with indignation at the disastrous injustice he could see creeping towards the Arabs, like some glacier inevitably pushing its way down a rocky valley. 
No matter how hard the rocks were, the glacier just pushed on through, grinding up all in its path. Lawrence had stood at the foot of that glacier and futilely railed against its progress. After two days' respite at his family home, which could never be restful given the fact it was ruled over by his diminutive mother, Lawrence had made his way into the very heart of the glacier of the British establishment, meeting generals, the foreign secretary, and even the king, whom he refused to take his victory cross from. He had explained to his monarch that he couldn't accept honours from Britain until Britain had honoured their promise of independence to the Arabs. His Royal Highness hadn't seemed too perturbed, and the conversation had turned to the gun that Lawrence had bought as a gift for his sovereign, a Lee Enfield rifle, captured by the Turks at Gallipoli and inlaid with a gold inscription in Arabic, booty from our defence of the Dardanelles, and given by the military governor of Arabia to King Hussein to remind him of Turkish victories over the British, to warn him against siding with the British against the Turks. Hussein had given it to his son Faisal, who in turn gifted it to Lawrence, and now the Essex Regiment rifle had found its way back to Britain and into the hands of George V. Lawrence made an impression wherever he went. He was aware of this. It was likely that whomever was the illustrious person he met with would be converted to his cause by the end of the meeting, or at least have pulled closer to Lawrence's opinion. There were exceptions. Unfortunately, the whole French nation seemed to be an exception, but then he had been vilified in their press for months before he had even set foot in France. To them, Lawrence was the front man for the British in stealing Syria from the French. Lawrence found their sense of entitlement perplexingly illogical. The French had fought crusades in the Holy Land 500 years previously and had been thoroughly beaten. But this fact, plus their seduction of the 200,000 Maronite Christians perched on Mount Lebanon, seemed sufficient for them to demand dominion over 8 million Arabs in an area the size of England that now went by the name of Syria. The French had used propaganda, rudeness and procedural procrastination to frustrate every step that war heroes Lawrence and Faisal took during the Paris Peace Conference. And now Lawrence couldn't wait to leave French soil. He had asked for a week's leave to retrieve his notebooks from Cairo. These notebooks would help him with his book, A Personal Account of the Arab Revolt. It had been his former Oxford mentor, Hogarth, who'd suggested it. Hogarth had recognised that Lawrence had come back from the war tormented by demons and considered that writing an account of his extraordinary war would be the best way to exorcise these demons. At the beginning of their Paris mission, Lawrence and Faisal had a flurry of meetings that included meeting Prime Minister Lloyd George and President Wilson. At the last minute, they had confirmed Faisal as an official delegate of the peace conference over the machinations of the French, and their presentation to the Council of Ten had been a resounding success. The heads of states had even applauded after Lawrence's perfect translation of Faisal's impassioned yet regal speech in Arabic, first into English and then into French. Faisal and Lawrence, heroes from the exotic East, unsullied by the down and dirty of trench warfare, were the toast of the town. Parisian high society veritably fought over inviting them to their sophisticated soirees. But notoriety had brought them little in the way of promises for the sanctity of self-determination for Syrians and Iraqis. After the meetings came the waiting, and increasingly not even the therapy of his book could save Lawrence.
He found himself sitting in his room, staring at the wall, and when he became aware of this fact, he would find that several hours had passed. A week ago, he had advised Faisal to return to Syria, to unite his people behind him, as only in that way could he resist the French and their dogged desire to realise, to the letter, the ignominious Sykes-Picot Treaty, in which Britain and France carved up Arabia between them as the spoils of war. With Faisal gone, Lawrence had nothing left to do in Paris but sit about and fume at the misinformation being printed about him by the French. He could have gone home. This would have been logical given that his father had succumbed to Spanish flu two weeks before. However, the thought of compounding his own misery at his father's passing with showing fortitude in the face of the aggressive grieving of his mother filled him with dread. What he needed was escape. So when he heard that the British military command was relocating their heavy bombers from Belgium to Cairo, a sign of British intentions in the Arab lands, Lawrence had managed to have it organised that one would stop by Paris and he'd go along for the ride on the pretext of retrieving his belongings from Cairo. The Handley Page bomber reminded Lawrence of a bumblebee. It seemed to defy gravity as it decelerated towards the runway and landed with a creaking thump. A British triumph, the Handley Page was 50% bigger than the dreaded German Gotha bombers. A wingspan of 110 feet for the upper wings and Rolls-Royce engines that muscled the 62-foot fuselage and up to 6,000 kilos off the ground and propelled it along at close to 100 miles per hour. Hardly speeds to outrun the fighter planes, but then that's why it had the two gunner decks on top. Lawrence had read about the bombers, but hadn't seen one up close. It was a beer moth. As it rolled up, the pilot, a Captain Prince, Lawrence had been informed, waved from the cockpit. His co-pilot, Pratt, saluted down to Lawrence. A third man was visible in the rear gunner's dock, Tomlin. This would be the crew to take Lawrence back to Arabia. The first surprise for Lawrence was that there was such a small trapdoor for ingress and egress into such a large machine. Lawrence had to climb a 10-foot stepladder and then haul himself rather ungraciously into the fuselage. Once in, there was an immediate sense of confinement. Despite being only 5 foot 5 inches tall, Lawrence had to stoop as directly above was the open-air cockpit. And in front of him was nearly two tonnes of bombs, sitting below two giant drums containing 300 gallons of fuel. Lawrence had a fascination for vehicles and a mind that intuitively mastered how they worked. He had read up on all the planes in the recently christened Royal Air Force. Despite deep scars, mental and physical, Lawrence wouldn't have swapped his experience of war in Arabia for any other. However, he had often longed to exchange his camel for an armoured motor car or a plane. He had spent much of the war levelling down the technological playing field between the Arabs and the Turks by blowing up the Turks' railways and bridges, leaving the Arabs on their camels as the fastest-moving troops in the desert. The feeling of claustrophobia disappeared once Lawrence edged his way around the bomb-casing unit that resembled a giant milk crate. As this plane, the romantically named D-539, had a full payload of bombs, it was at its weight capacity, so no further supplies were on board, and the 40-foot of the fuselage behind the wings was almost completely empty. So, sir, this is home for the next few days. Feel free to dust down wherever you like, said Second Lieutenant Pratt. You're welcome to come and join us up in the cockpit whenever you please, but remember your goggles near muffs. It's pretty noisy and windy up there. Well... With an eagle eight over each shoulder, I can imagine it gets a bit noisy, Lawrence replied. 
Familiar with the O400, are you, sir? I've read about her. Looking forward to seeing her in action. Lawrence had spent the whole three hours of the first leg of their journey from Paris to Lyon in the cockpit with Prince and Pratt. It was glorious, despite the day being rather overcast. The green expanse of central France was set out in miniature beneath him like some immensely detailed military map. They were too far west to see the front line or any of the war zone, and so the part of France below them was untouched by war and, Lawrence reflected, must have looked much as it had for hundreds of years. In Lyon, they refuelled, ate a perfunctory lunch and then climbed back on board and headed to Marseille. Lawrence was still chilly from being in the cockpit for the first leg, so decided to stay below. Despite four months of Parisian cuisine, he barely had an ounce of fat on him, and in any case, two years in the desert had not only altered his mind, it had also altered his internal thermometer. Lawrence made himself a work desk out of a wooden crate and a wooden box and set to reading what he had written so far of his Arab Revolt memoir. Something about the hum of the Rolls-Royce Eagle engines, the spacious fuselage, which was at least four times the size of the room he'd been holed up in at the Hotel Carlton, the deceptive stillness, oh, he knew they were eating up the miles at twice the speed they could have in a motorcade, but somehow he felt like they were suspended in time and space, and this vividly transported Lawrence back to his days in the desert. They felt real and immediate, in a way that they hadn't in Paris. In Paris, he had known intellectually all that he had experienced, but he couldn't feel it. Here, cocooned on this plain, he heard the echo through the narrow canyon of the three bullets it had taken him to execute Hamad the Moor. His hand had been shaking violently, partly from the crippling dysentery and high fever, but partly from the horror of executing a man from his own army. It had been the only way. When he was told that Hamad the Moor had shot an Al-Glau, he knew the only solution was he personally execute the man. A blood feud between the Al-Glaus and the Moors under his command was unthinkable or between any of the fractious tribes under him, and so he, the only man without a tribe, had shot Hamad. He'd shot him in the chest, but this hadn't killed him, and the man lay screaming at his feet. His second shot, given that Lawrence's hand was shaking so, had only hit the man's wrist. It was not something that he would let happen again. Lawrence strode forward, placed the revolver under the screaming man's chin, and fired a third time. This was the first and last time that Lawrence's hand would waver throughout the war. Brace yourself, sir. We're coming into land, Private Tomlin shouted down from the rear gunner's mount. As they ignominiously crunched into the earth, Lawrence tried to wrench his mind away from the desert. It was the Marseille air depot. They still had plenty of fuel, but the bosses had deemed it prudent that a mechanical pit stop be taken before flying over the sea to Pisa. Lawrence resented the stop, wishing to be back in the womb of the Handley, his mind inside the early days of the campaign, the days in which he willed the strategy for the Arabs that turned them from a force that lost every pitch battle they fought against the better organised and better armed Turks to fearful shadows that seemed to strike like the wind and disappear just as fast, and who would, in time, ride victorious into Damascus. But in the here and now, these events were in the past, and everyone knew something of them, and so at each airstrip there was a gaggle of men desiring to shake the hand of Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence didn't care much for handshaking, never had. 
The intimacy of skin-on-skin -skin contact had always been something he had assiduously avoided, so he kept his hands firmly behind his back and smiled his sardonic smile and graciously peppered his conversation with Arabian anecdotes to please his audience and while away the time until he could heave himself back into his sanctuary of the Handley Page. His audience having melted off to the mess, Lawrence paced around impatiently. It was getting close to six o'clock and the maintenance wasn't finished. He worried that the captain would call off their last scheduled leg of the day. Despite being ostensibly a nighttime bomber, the Handley Page bomber crews had been instructed only to fly in daylight. Daytime flying was safer. Lawrence walked over and joined the maintenance team and observed as they performed their duties. He had an overwhelming urge to take off his jacket and join in. But this wouldn't be deemed appropriate. After all, now he was war hero, Lieutenant Colonel T.E. Lawrence, somewhere between supplicant, showman and statesman. He missed the practical mechanical acts he had performed for two years in the desert. He had personally learned how to make, arm and set off all manner of explosives, and the immediacy of these tasks and their satisfyingly destructive results, so clear to see, had been among his most exhilarating experiences. Captain Prince turned to Lawrence. Well, we're game if you are, sir. Certainly, Captain. I would be delighted to see the sunset from the air. Lawrence had instructed Tomlin to come and get him once they left land behind and started across the Ligurian Sea. Until then, he would write. He picked up where he had finished in Paris, the execution of Hamad the Moor. He recalled the days that followed, trekking through the desert with extreme lucidity. He had been running a high fever, and they even had to lift him on and off his camel. Yet through his illness, the desert landscape spoke to him. He saw every crag, every twisted tree. They entered a surreal succession of ancient lava floods, the first being iron rust red, the second blacker than obsidian, the final one had the consistency and shine of metal with a razor-sharp surface that plagued the feet of their camels. The barrenness of the smooth ancient rocks, some of which had cooled in such ways that they looked like a river frozen in time, was contrasted by pockets of fecund, vivid greenness. In nooks and potholes that had allowed earth to gather, the mineral wealth from the lava rocks produced an outpouring of life. And Lawrence noticed every blade, every leaf, as he rode through. His fever was working itself out, but not before subjecting him to a final, tempestuous night of fervent dreams. In them he was running across endless dunes of ancient lava, the soles of his bare feet being shredded to pieces, and behind him, always on the edge of his peripheral vision, was the ghost of a certain moor, endlessly tracking him. The darkening sea, 5,000 feet beneath him, reminded Lawrence of those razor-metallic dark blue rocks. The spreading deep red of the horizon behind them, back towards France, reminded him of those rust-red ancient rocks, fluid in form but immovably defiant in time. Lawrence realised that with each mile eaten up by the Rolls-Royce engines, he was being drawn back into Arabia, a land with a great history, a proud people, and for whom he had tried to lobby for a proud future. Lawrence peered through the wings into the darkness of the east, stretching out beyond the curving coast of approaching Italy. Only darkness lay beyond, and he feared that in darkness it may remain. 
the dignified and reasoned arguments delivered by the regal Faisal, recognised by all as a war hero, had indeed moved the white-haired patriarchs of the Western world, but not enough to deviate them from their determination to have their spoils of war. Thirteen million Arabs rattling around in a vast land were, despite Wilson's hollow talk of self-determination, seen as plaintive pawns in the chess game of giants. Lawrence, a plaintive pawn himself, but one with access to the bishops and knights in this game, had run out of moves. His aim had been to place Faisal as the rightful king of the Arabs, an educated and wise and far-sighted man who would bring the Arabs into the modern world, into a state where they could have a future in the face of the vicissitudes of the great powers. Faisal had united disparate Bedouin tribes, Iraqis, Syrians, Sunnis and Shias. He even had the backing of the Syrian Greek Orthodox Church and the Rabbi of Damascus. In a land where over the course of centuries Turkish wild had exacerbated and used every existing internecine rivalry and even created new ones, Faisal had an uphill battle to reignite Arab unity. But so far he had proved a match for the challenge. He just needed the space and time to continue his work. The next day they planned to hop along the Italian peninsula and finish their day in Albania. The first leg of their journey was from Pisa to Rome. It was a bright, sunny day, but Lawrence found the belly of the plane so conducive to writing that he passed up the chance of viewing Italy from the air and continued on with his desert odyssey, describing the thrilling mission to blow up the station and railway line at Abba El Nam. It had been the first time Lawrence had laid the explosives himself, and he delighted in recounting how he had set up the improvised trigger mechanism made from an old single-shot rifle. The next morning, the 20 pounds of gelatine created an explosion that blew the carriage that ran over it into tiny pieces and severed the railway line. 70 Turks were killed and 40 taken prisoner, and the railway lifeline to Turkish-held Medina was out of action for three days all for the price of one Arab life. It was vindication of Lawrence's guerrilla warfare strategy and marked the turning of the tide against the Turks. Severe turbulence caused Lawrence to make a mess of the page he was writing on. He looked up annoyed. Tomlin had ducked down inside. Colonel, sir, you'd better hang on. We're coming into Rome. It's a bit on the bumpy side. With that, Tomlin resumed his seat in the rear gunner's nest. Lawrence could tell from the direction that Tomlin's scarf was blowing in that the pilot was, it seemed, landing with the wind. Lawrence had read that this was not good practice and carefully made his way towards the rear of the plane. As he clambered backwards, grasping tightly to the wooden ribs, his feet were swept from under him as the plane skidded into the ground, only to immediately lift back into the air. Then the plane stopped abruptly as it crashed into something. Losing his grip, Lawrence tumbled forward, striking the side of the bomb crate. It had taken over an hour for the airfield crew to get them out of the wreckage. Captain Prince had, it seemed, decided against landing and upon touching down had immediately risen again, but not soon enough to clear the trees at the perimeter of the airfield. Both Prince and his co-pilot Pratt had been flung from the cockpit by the force of the crash and killed. Tomlin was in quite a state, having jackknifed against the hard edge of his gunner's nest. Lawrence had, with a broken collarbone, fractured wrist and two broken ribs, got off lightly. Lawrence felt trapped all over again. He was tucked tightly into his hospital bed and was having to endure the jovial sycophancy of the British ambassador, who was impressing on Lawrence that, if one has to crash, Rome is the best place to do it. Best possible place to recuperate, old boy. 
the old buffoon was already planning Lawrence's social engagements over the coming weeks, all of which seemed to involve Lawrence of Arabia being on the arm of his ever-so-eligible daughter. So when he heard that the next Handley page was coming through Rome, Lawrence begged the nurses to strap him up and order him a cab to the airfield. This next airplane, the C-9745, was piloted by an American, a Mr Dixon, and instead of bombs, Lawrence had to fashion his workspace in between the crates of supplies that almost completely filled the fuselage. They flew from Rome to Taranto and then on to Valor in Albania. Lawrence wondered how a rural Muslim people such as the Albanians had managed to achieve what the Arabs, with their great history and great cities, hadn't, and win independence from the Ottomans on their own terms. They had managed this just two years before the Great War. The fact that they had risen up before the war meant that their territorial integrity was upheld by the great powers, while the Arab lands were seen as a movable feast for Britain and France to scrap over. The following day, Lawrence decided against writing in favour of gazing down on the mountainous topography of Greece. In one go, they crossed the whole of Greece and flew out over the sea to Crete. Unfortunately, once there, it was discovered that there was some fatal fault with one of the C9745's engines, and so the next morning, Lawrence was informed that the plane would be grounded until replacement parts arrived from England. Lawrence toyed with the idea of making his way from the base at Suda Bay to Heraklion and see if he could find a ship heading for Alexandria. Already he was two weeks overdue from returning from his one-week leave. However, on reflection, he figured that it wasn't his fault that he was stranded. He had been told that the D-539 would get him to Cairo in four to five days. In any case, he rather liked the primitive bunkhouse at the Suda Bay airfield and the sleepy heat of Crete was evocative for his writing. So he stayed and waited for his next ride and settled down to more reliving of his desert campaign. The next plane did not arrive for a full month, by which time Lawrence was finished with the capture of Aqaba and was, with his Arab army, on the road to Damascus. Lawrence was jolted back to the present when a familiar face descended from the new bomber, the F-318. Sinjin Philby swaggered over to Lawrence with his normal, rafish smile. Well, well, so this is where you've been sitting out the war, is it? The war's been over this past year, I think you'll find, Sinjin, Lawrence replied courteously. Ha! So you haven't heard, then. Ibn Saud has routed Hussein from Mecca, gloated Philby. Sinjin Philby was nominally on the same team as Lawrence, a British intelligence officer working on the Arab Peninsula. Only Philby was part of the India office, whereas Lawrence had been part of the British Army Intelligence Unit that operated out of Cairo. Lawrence had been seconded to help the Sharif of Mecca, King Hussein, ferment rebellion against the Turks. However, his low opinion of the king, and equally low opinion of his eldest son, Abdullah, had led him to seek out Hussein's second son, Faisal, a natural leader, a fast learner, and a forward-looking man. Together, Faisal and Lawrence had shined and moved into legend in Arabia and beyond. However, theirs was not the only Arab army notching up military victories in the war years. Ibn Saud had been, since his reconquest of his ancestral city of Riyadh, with his fanatical Wahhabi Ikhwan warriors at his side, steadily extending his reach over central Arabia. As well as his ferocious warriors, Ibn Saud had the support of the Raj, which sent him gold each month, and the Raj had also sent him Sinjin Philby, who became his most trusted advisor. 
Looks like you backed the wrong horse, Neddy, Sinjin said, and much to Lawrence's discomfort, clapped him on the back. I'm in a terrible hurry, you see. Orders from the top. They want me to negotiate a settlement between Ibn Saud and Hussein. Hussein was never my horse, Sinjin. The Arabs need a modern man if they are to stand a chance of having a viable state in the modern world. Oh yes, Syria under young Faisal. I heard you were lobbying hard for that. Good luck with the French, stubborn buggers. Keep whinging on about those million men they lost scrapping with the Germans in their backyard, as if that so obviously entitles them to Arabia. Short on logic, but long on stubbornness, I'm afraid, and now with a war machine idling away with nothing better to do than back up that stubbornness. Lawrence winced at Philby's coarseness, a coarse rogue who had attached himself to another coarse rogue. Ibn Saud and his fanatical Ikhwan would drag Arabia back to the Middle Ages. Well, to hell with it, thought Lawrence. Let Ibn Saud drag the desert wastelands of the peninsula back to the times of the Prophet, but leave the cities, the cultured centres of Arabia, to Faisal. That was the stable future, not the transient rule of some desert tough man who reputedly already had over 90 children and kept his gold from the India office in a chest in his tent, the sum total of his new nation's wealth. Lawrence was surprised to find that he enjoyed his evening with Philby. A rogue he might be, but Lawrence had to admire his incredible feats of endurance in travelling throughout Arabia. The two of them had parallel lives, and yet they viewed them and used them so differently. Philby's gloating over backing the winning horse had been dulled early in the evening when Lawrence made it clear that he was not surprised by Hussein and his son Abdullah's defeat at the hands of Ibn Saud. Abdullah was a soft diplomat with no inclination for warfare. His defeat was no less than he deserved. So Talk had moved on to their respective desert experiences and they impressed each other with their detailed knowledge of the tribes and the politics of the land. The only uncomfortable moment was when Philby confided to Lawrence that Ibn Saud had provided him with his own harem. Lawrence couldn't tell if he was joking or not, but either way, he found it distasteful in the extreme. The Canadian crew of the F-318 were charged with getting Philby to Cairo as quickly as possible. Indeed, they had left Marseille with him only three days earlier, covering in 72 hours what had so far taken Lawrence 51 days. So they set off before dawn, the first plane to ever attempt to cross the expanse of the Mediterranean Sea. Lawrence donned his hat and goggles and squeezed into the cockpit, as much to escape Philby as to admire the view. He surveyed from there the pre-dawn blackness of the sea with morbid fascination. Their bomber was a mere speck, surrounded in all directions by an unforgiving blackness that could so easily swallow them up. He felt the urge to share his feelings, and without thinking it through, he wrote a note and gave it to the pilots. Wouldn't it be fun if we came down now? I don't think so. The pilots each read it in turn, looked over at him for a moment, then returned their concentration to flying. It was impossible to read people's expression through the thick flying goggles, but Lawrence was sure he hadn't managed to convey what he had meant. What made him think that he could write a book about the Arab revolt? All those thoughts and feelings, people and places, hardships and death, lives of people he had known and respected, even loved, snuffed out, and for what? For replacing the Muslim Ottoman Caliph with the even more distant and callous strong arm of Christian empires, sending in their cynical crusaders in metal flying machines to scourge Arab lands. The fact was that his war was over. Lawrence of Arabia and the dream that it entailed was no more. He needed to find a new part to play.
Afterward, T.E. Lawrence wasn't able to escape out from under the shadow of Lawrence of Arabia for many years. Shortly after Lawrence returned from Cairo, the American journalist Lowell Thomas opened the photo show in London with Alan B. in Palestine, featuring Lawrence. The footage of Lawrence was so wildly popular that Thomas rebranded the show with Allenby in Palestine and Lawrence in Arabia. The queues to get in the show were so long that the police had to be drafted in to manage them. In 1921, Lawrence interrupted his writing to become a special advisor for the Middle East at the colonial office under Winston Churchill. Lawrence energetically set out to try and make the best settlement for Faisal, who had been driven out of Syria by the French in a one-sided war in July 1920. In the first instance of shuttle diplomacy, Lawrence flew back and forth repeatedly between Cairo, Amman, Mecca and Baghdad, which resulted in setting up the new state of Iraq under the leadership of Faisal and the new state of Transjordan under the leadership of Faisal's older brother, Abdullah. Unfortunately, Faisal, who had enjoyed genuine popular support as the leader of Syria, was seen as an outsider in Iraq, imposed by the British. He was a Sunni ruling over a country with a majority Shiite population and with a large disgruntled Kurdish community within it that had wanted its own state. Lawrence's solution was not the one he had sought in 1918-1919, but was the best one that he could come up with given that the French had taken over Syria and that the lands of Iraq and Palestine had already been carved out as British protectorates and that Ibn Saud was in de facto control of Central Arabia. Lawrence left his post at the colonial office immediately on his return, feeling he had, as much as he possibly could, made amends to Faisal and his family for Great Britain's reneging on promises made during the Great War. T.E. Lawrence immediately enlisted as a private in the Royal Air Force under an assumed identity, John Hume Ross. When the paparazzi found out that Lawrence of Arabia had enlisted as a simple private, they hounded Lawrence to the point that the RAF felt that they had to dismiss him. Lawrence changed his name again to T.E. Shaw and enlisted in the army as a private. Lawrence hated the army and lobbied repeatedly to be readmitted to the RAF, which he finally achieved in 1925, serving out the remaining 10 years of his commission as Airman T.E. Shaw. So before writing this story, I had no idea how huge the planes had become by the end of World War I. The Handley Page bombers captured my imagination and I found it amazing that T.E. Lawrence, an important figure at the time, took nearly two months off, leapfrogging across Europe, surviving a crash and also then was part of the maiden flight over the Mediterranean Sea. On that journey, he found some much needed isolation and solitude, particularly in the heat of Crete. The Year podcast, much like T.E. Lawrence 100 years ago, is taking a break over the rest of July and August, and I'll be back with the 11th instalment in September. I hope that you too will be having some relaxing days filled with sunshine and space over the coming weeks, and I look forward to returning to you in September. I'd also like to thank my good friend, Michael, who is recording this. In this time, we're recording at his facilities in Warsaw at Noise Room. And so I'm hoping that uh, the quality of this particular podcast will be sounding uh, a little clearer than the ones that I record in my bedroom. So thank you, Michael. And I hope you two have a good summer break after you've finished editing this and see you again in September too. Mm-hmm.